All right, so we made it through Thanksgiving. For some of us, that's kind of like an accomplishment. I'm very grateful to be here, to be standing here right now. I didn't have nearly the traumatic experience that Gus did, but um, that second helping of turkey and stuffing and all that stuff just about did me in. Um, I really was regretting a lot of my life choices at that moment. Um, ain't as young as I used to be. Can't do that thing as well as I used to. But uh, what a great time it was to be around family. Great time, uh, I, I think, for so many to uh, to experience that kind of gathering. But we get through these kinds of things, sometimes feeling like it's a bit of an accomplishment, sometimes feeling like, okay, could have gone a lot worse, we made it through, that kind of thing. Sometimes getting on the other side of something is just healing in and of itself because you don't know how it's going to go. So that's why I say, not really tongue-in-cheek, but congratulations, you made it here. You got through one of these holidays, so yeah. Some of you are like, yep, that was me. Well, being a full-service church that we are, always trying to give practical wisdom and guidance to God's people, I want to encourage you ladies, if you're looking for a gift for your man, you can never go wrong with more flashlights. Now... I think, guys, yeah, I'm seeing some reactions here. You've got that guy in your life, right? I mean, there's, we love our flashlights. We like the little ones with the really bright lights, you know. You can hardly find the button sometimes. We like the big ones that you can clobber the bad guy over the head. We're never going to do that, but we like that feeling that that massive mag light brings us. It's like, yeah, like walking around with a big stick, you know. We have it on our phones, I have mine positioned so much that my app is just right there at perfect thumb reach so I can turn that flashlight on when I need it. I need that kind of illumination to do certain things. I was running into that recently working on something at the house and without a flashlight, you're in this really dark corner. You can't see all that you need to do. Light, to state the obvious, light helps us get these things done. But conversely... Light also allows a cover of darkness that allows those that would be aimed towards evil deeds or wanting to do the thing that's wicked in their heart. Darkness has a tendency to give a cover that allows for more of that to happen. Now, we understood from Asaph last week when we were studying Psalm 73 that that, that, uh, that lack of consequence is temporary. That those with that wickedness, those with those evil desires, as they move under the cover of darkness, they get away with it for only so long. Asaph gave us an eternal um, viewpoint on how those things play out. Jesus said in John 3, 19, that people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Darkness gives that cover and allows more wiggle room, if you will, for those things to happen. But when we're going to come to the uh, story of Bethlehem, when we're going to look at a nativity scene here, if we just dive in at the birth of Jesus Christ, we're coming in the story halfway. The announcement and the arrival of a light that couldn't be put out, that no darkness could defeat, did not just start in the manger. Most of you know all the elements of the story of the Christmas message, but it's very important for us as people of God to be reminded of the fact that we didn't just arrive where God said, you know what, I think it's time. I'm going to send my son and we're going to send out a positive, hopeful message that carols will be written to, that people can exchange gifts and that the season of joy will start there. The reason why we have a season of joy is because of how dark and ugly and wicked mankind had become leading up to that arrival. So 
because we present a full gospel here at faith, not just the happy parts. We've got to go back to the need. We've got to go back to the why. I'm going to take us back nearly to the beginning. We're going to go to Genesis chapter three, and we're going to look in on two people you know well, Adam and Eve. Now, Adam and Eve have been experiencing a life of after being created by their, their, their Lord and having a friendship and a relationship, a, a casual kind of walking communion with their creator and with each other. And things are great and splendid until they weren't, until things changed. We come in to our story, our Christmas story, just after things changed for Adam and Eve. We know what happens. They took of the fruit. They were seduced by the temptation of the, of the enemy of Satan himself, and they fell to that. And so God comes looking for them in verse uh, 8 of chapter 3 of Genesis. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. They jump in the bushes from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So let's set up the scene. Let's act it out just a little bit because I think it's good for us to get tripped up on the fact that they anticipated God walking down a path. They could hear the footsteps of God coming as though it was just any other day. And it was for them. You see, this is what a sinless existence provided for them was having that relationship. And could you imagine just recognizing the footsteps of God? Here he comes. I wonder if it was a daily experience, if it was the kind of thing where they were reporting to him, hey, we named some more animals or we found that waterfall in the garden that we hadn't seen before. There's all these new experiences. We can't believe this place that you made for us. This is amazing. And every day would have felt like that celebration, that reporting, that checking in with the one that they loved and appreciated so much. But all of a sudden they hear those footsteps and it causes them to find darkness, to find cover, to dive in the bushes so that when God comes and asks a question he already knows the answer to, there's a sermon in several of these questions just by themselves. The Lord God called to the man in verse 9 and said to him, Adam, where are you? Does he not know? Of course he does. So Adam says, all right, funny story. Um, I heard you coming. I, I could tell your footsteps because we know you. I mean, who else is going to be walking around here, right? <laughs> And so um, we realized we're not uh, literally dressed for the occasion. As you are coming down the path, we realized we're, we're naked, we're, we're exposed, we can't present ourselves this way. So the Lord responds with another question he knows the answer to. He says, who told you that you were naked? This wasn't an issue yesterday. How did this become a thing all of a sudden? That now you know what naked is and now you're concerned about it. And now you're hiding from me as though I didn't make you. I know what's going on here. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And now Adam does what every responsible spiritual leader of his household, the first household created will do, right? Now, it's important because you know where I'm going with this. It's important to take a step back. Last week when we talked about how Asaph was was complaining to the Lord, my life isn't going as well as the wicked. The wicked are getting away with it. And Asaph was really wallowing, wallowing in this this fear and this, this feeling of, of God's not taking care of me. That when we start to complain, when we start to express our disappointment with the circumstances of our life, the the person I'm wrestling with, the uh, the job that's not going my way, the fact that my parents are coming down on me, all those kinds of things, the things that we struggle with, we have a tendency to complain as though the only people that are due the complaint 
are the ones that we are in relationship with. But Adam exposes for us here, sorry for the pun, Adam shows us that the blame really goes somewhere else when we're being honest. Adam says, the, the woman, the compliment, the piece to my life, the missing element in my life after you created me, the one you provided, fashioned out of my rib that you built with your hands, the one that you gave me. She's so darn cute, I couldn't say no. I, I had to. I'm a victim here, Lord. You see where the blame goes when we are honest with ourselves, when we're honest with the Lord as he finds us hiding in the bushes, we say, Ultimately, God, I'm upset with you. You could have prevented this, but you didn't. And so here we are. So Adam throws his wife under a bus that has yet to be invented. So then the Lord, after dealing with Adam, he's not just moving down the line to find out who's to blame. He's dealing with Adam. He's dealing with her. And then he's going to deal with the serpent, turns his attention to the woman and says, what is this that you have done? So taking a page out of Adam's book, Instead of just saying, caught me, I am, uh, there's nowhere for me to hide. I see that now. It was, well, there's a serpent involved here and it's all his fault. We popularize the phrase, the devil made me do it. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Was she telling the truth? Yeah. The serpent did have a role to play. Did Adam tell the truth? Yeah. His wife did say, Hey, this tastes really good. You should try it. (laughs) Forget the consequences. It was all laid bare. They're telling truths, but they're not owning up to their part in the story. So what's happening here as as Adam and Eve and and all of their their doubling down on their sin and they're hiding from their their uh, their failures and they're rejecting the Lord. They don't want his gaze to look on them. All of that is ushering in this darkness. It's rolling in like a billowing cloud. It's just moving in. This darkness is coming into the garden that's never been there before. So the Lord says, you got to go. From that moment on, all of mankind, we've been stumbling in darkness, stubbing our toe on the edge of the beds in, in, in the darkness of our rooms, trying to figure out the lay of the land, but can't see clearly. We are walking in darkness. And the beautiful passage that our teens uh, read, the Moors did a great job for um, Advent Candle this morning. Appreciate you guys doing that. In fact, Pastor Gary has lined up several other teens to help us with that for the rest of the month, so that's pretty cool to be able to see. But that passage that they read, the beautiful words that have been inscribed on so many Christmas cards that have informed so many of the carols and the songs that we sing came at a point of absolute darkness that has been building since the time of the garden. Isaiah, the prophet to Judah, that God's people are divided into two kingdoms at this point. We have Israel in the north, we have Judah in the south. Each kingdom has prophets that God has assigned to them, giving them his words directly to share with the people. And so they are faithful to execute those those words of God and to inform the people most of the time in warning, saying, if you don't repent, if you don't turn from your sins, because so much of this was going on in the kingdoms. If you read the book of Kings, the books of Kings, what you see is a flopping back and flip flopping, flopping back and forth of Good king, bad king, good king, bad king. And you have all these examples before you. You can see a very clear path of the the king that comes to power humbly and says, I don't deserve this throne. I can't rule this on my own. I'm going to do things the Lord's way. I'm going to hack down all the idols and all the gods and the poles and all the things that they worship. And I'm cleaning house for the cause of, of the Lord. He's blessed. 
The nation's blessed. There's, there's camaraderie, there's enthusiasm, there are all those things. They upset some people, but for the most part, it's a very clear act of blessing. And then you have others who can't wait to get their throne. They can't wait to get there. Often these guys coming to power in, in their late teens, early 20s. Imagine what that does to someone's head to have that much power. It's finally my turn. I get all that I want out, laid out before me. And they reject the voice of the Lord. They reject the work of the Lord, which is often hard to go and start whacking down people's idols. That doesn't always go well. And in, in, in Isaiah's uh, case, when he's giving the instruction here from Isaiah 9, in, in particular the verses we heard in 6 and 7, he is speaking at the time of the reign of King Ahaz. And Ahaz is all mixed up. He's got an allegiance and an affinity for the pagan rituals, and he's linked himself up with a nation, the Assyrians, who are vowing to protect him from all of his enemies, but it'll come at a price. You're going to do our bidding in your land. Ahaz says, works for me, because he's only caring about his reign. I might, I might reign in safety and security because of the strength of my friends, but I'm not going to do things the Lord's way. In fact, he goes the exact opposite way. And imagine the heartbreak of a nation, if they can see it, the heartbreak of a nation whose king takes his only son and burns him in a fire to the god Molech in, in a sign of solidarity and faithfulness and where his heart was being brought and the heaviness and the darkness keeps rolling in heavy in the day of Isaiah to the land of Judah. This is the backdrop. This is the situation that takes place when Isaiah shares the amazing words that we heard earlier. Just prior to chapter nine, we get a warning. Isaiah 8 says they will pass through the land. In other words, it's going to get worse before it gets better. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they'll look to the earth, but behold, distress and, have we heard this already? Darkness. The gloom of anguish. This is what the people are living in is this gloom, this heaviness of anguish. And they will be thrust into even greater, thicker darkness. Then come the words of Isaiah in the next chapter in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Good times are coming. We're restoring the land. We're going to have prosperity again. All of these things are coming. The people, verse two, who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness on them has light shone. Let's skip down to verse six, where we read, for to us, a child is born. The light that's coming to you is coming through an infant, through the birth of a child. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now a nation's starting to hear what they want to hear out of this. We're going to have stability. We're going to have a king who reigns. This is all looking great for us. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. His name shall be called Mighty God. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. His name shall be called Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. This prophecy comes 700 years before the birth of Jesus in a manger. How would you hold on? Obviously, you're not going to make it all 700 years. Every generation thinks it can't get any worse. In our day and age, as we study in our eschatology, when will Christ come back? What's the point of his return? And we say, it can't get any worse. It's got to be any moment. And yet the Lord tarries and is long suffering and continues to wait until the moment that he is ready to return. For 700 years, there were some that held out hope that that little light that Isaiah just promised, that a son is coming. There were some that held up hope. Well, that's where I'm sticking my focus then. I am anchored to that, to that dot, that light on a hill. I will move in all of my being, all of my manners, all of my worship will go towards that light. I've anchored my hope in this promise. Where others have seen this tiny little light, this tiny little promise, and it's been so in, in, invasive on their evil practices, that now they're starting to fear. It's a threat. What do you mean a child's coming? What do you mean a son is given? What do you, what do you mean that the government's going to rest on his shoulders? What does that mean to our position? That tiny little light, that distant, distant promise is now this major threat. What I hope to accomplish over the next several weeks as we go through each of these um, passages and going through our Advent weeks is to break down these four titles given to the light that was coming. To look at the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father and prince of peace and understand first and foremost what that answered for the Jewish ear, but also what does it mean for us today to have the promise of the presence of the king of kings and lord of lords in our life? You see, this is why we couldn't just start in the manger, because if we just come in and the arrival of the of the hope and the light has arrived and we haven't appreciated the darkness, what hope do we have? So as we break down this twofold name, this wonderful counselor name this week, in the little bit of time that we have left, I just want to look at those two words in, in uh, isolation and see how they come together for us. I had the, uh, the privilege several years ago when um, my, I always ask a, um, permission from my kids before. I shouldn't say I always do. I ask permission sometimes from my kids before I use some element of their life as an illustration. Um, my oldest son wasn't here in the first service. He wasn't around for me to ask, so I talked about him. He's here, so I asked his permission. He was like, you always do this, but fine. I had the privilege of uh, watching. We went to a, a talent show that the youth group was having. And this was several years ago. It was a pretty full room in the youth building and stuff. And my son, both of my sons work on illusions and tricks and things along those lines. And I like using them as uh, as party tricks when uh, people are over and stuff. It's like do some of these things and do some card tricks or some, you know, pull the coin out of your ear kind of things. And they, they actually started getting really good at these things where I was like, okay, this is more than just doing that to the five-year-old and pulling a quarter out of their ear. This is the kind of thing that all of us adults in the room go, how'd you do that? And so I had the privilege of seeing one of these larger, riskier tricks play out in front of a live audience. And um, what, uh, what Trey did is he, he took several participants from the, uh, uh, the audience who were church-going Christian folks. So if they said they were randomly picked, we believed them. 
If they weren't, that's on them and you know who you are. Um, so they were picked individually, put up on stage, and then uh, the the trick was, uh, was a numbers-based trick. Perhaps you've seen these kinds of things on the talent shows and stuff on TV. And so they had, he, I don't, I don't remember all of the details here, but he might have rearranged people a little bit and he had them each call out a number almost like how you'd see on the page of the lottery on the news or something that each number was just kind of listed that way. And, uh, and, uh, after he arranged them, got them in the order, they all said, we haven't done any of this before. We don't even know. We're just coming up with a number. Um, he pointed to somebody that was sitting in a chair somewhere and he said, I want you to reach under. And the person in the chair said, I'm not a part of this trick. I don't know what's going on. And they didn't even know there was an envelope under their chair for one. And they reached under and they opened the envelope and you know where this is going that they read the numbers in the same sequence as every random person on the stage said, hopefully, Trey, I'm representing this trick okay. But all of us, as we heard each number, and you know that feeling, that anticipation, it's building like this is happening. We're really witnessing this. And then the final number is called and it's spot on. And you just had over, you know, a hundred, couple hundred people. just, (gasps) And I'm like, how did I make him? I don't understand this. Who knew this was like, why couldn't you have done this in school? You know, our jaws had dropped. We were mesmerized. We had this collective, like everybody in the room were now best friends because we all witnessed the same thing. We, we felt this. I know I'm overplaying it here. I have to embellish a little bit because my son was gracious enough for me to use the, the story. But it was this really cool moment of being kind of freaked out in a healthy kind of way. And that's what I love about that idea of the art of illusion and those kinds of things. I was glad I, I, I knew there was an answer to how this is done, that it wasn't some voodoo-y weird stuff or else I'd have to be down a son, you know, and send him out, not allow him home anymore. So I'm glad it wasn't that. But I know there's an answer to how it happens. I know they were studying a craft in order to be prepared to do that kind of thing, but I don't want to know how. I don't want to understand how he can attest to you. I didn't want to know any answers to any of the tricks because I enjoy a feeling in my life of being mesmerized by things I can't comprehend. Now, fortunately, I get a lot of those opportunities in life. I'm just thinking about that going, okay, it's probably, I walked right into that one. But the reality is I want to be in the presence of something where I go, I don't know how to put those pieces together. That humbling feeling of, I often tease about, because I love like big monster stuff like Godzilla and stuff like that. I'm like, that's how I want to go out. I want the Bigfoot of Godzilla coming all over, you know, because I want to just be like, I can't comprehend, I can't escape any of this. The title, Wonderful Counselor, the word wonderful is same in Hebrew as the word miracle. And what God does when he performs a miracle is he draws in the observer intending to blow their mind. Intending to undo their thinking, we would have the expression, mind blown, right? So the miraculous God, whenever he engages in that miracle, is for the intent of that mesmerizing, jaw-dropping, unexplainable reaction to what I just witnessed. And there's a deeper part to this, too, that I love in the, in the, the way that the language is formed, is that there's an inescapability to it. I mentioned to you about like, you know, the big monster foot coming down. I can't, I just have to take this in because there's nowhere I could run. And I'm teasing about that's the way I want to, don't, please don't go see Godzilla and send him my way. But there's a reality in the fact that it's like, that's, I don't want to be anywhere else. 
that's witnessing a kind of undoing miracle, witnessing the kind of thing that you can't. I just want to be here to see this. This is the one that Isaiah is announcing 700 years in advance. He's saying the one who has done all the miracles that we can't comprehend, the one who's hung the stars in the sky, the one who has uh, formed man out of the dust, he's formed woman out of his rib, he's done all the things that blow our mind. This same one is going to be born in a manger, again blowing our mind, saying, how do you arrive that way? Why would you come that way? Everything that God does, everything he did through the life of Jesus from his arrival to his, uh, his, his upbringing, to his interaction with others through the healing and the resurrecting, through his words to the religious establishment, turning everything they believed and did right upside down, to his words of compassion to the wickedest sinner that the society had shunned and gotten rid of. Everything Jesus did was upside down, mesmerizing and mind-blowing even to the point that it led him to the cross to give his life, to willingly give his life in what looked like a complete and utter defeat. You see, when, when Isaiah says that he is a wonderful counselor, he's not meh. He's not okay. He's not pretty good. He's not even just adequate. If, if that kind of counsel, if that kind of administration, if that kind of wisdom is available to me and made clear in my life, it is going to show up in such a way that I'm not going to be able to comprehend. It, it puts more color on the, the scripture phrase that says, his ways are not our ways. Our thoughts are nowhere near his thoughts. Everything that God does is to blow our minds. Now, I know we got to be careful about this. You know, we want to be theologically accurate. We want to be rigorous in our study. I know, and you know, that there have been so many abuses to this train of thought in the history of the church. That even today, we see all the abuses. I know we've got to be careful. We're not going to put a 1-800 number on the bottom of our Facebook screen that says, if you send in your 1995, we're going to give you that little vial of oil that you're going to dabble on your checkbook, and all God's goodness is going to be revealed to you and stuff. I know we've got to be careful not to walk down that path when we start talking about a miraculous God. But I fear for the church. I fear for the kingdom of God who has become so theologically rigorous and accurate that we have forgotten because we're trying to avoid those abuses that we've forgotten that the way he shows up blows our mind. That God doesn't just come in to fix a marriage a little bit. That God doesn't come in to heal from an addiction just a little bit. That God doesn't come in to rearrange the order of our life, to have a surrender to living in his principles just a little bit. And he'll take that little bit and he'll accept it and he'll move on because he's, he's a passive God. This is a, a, a God who has shown up in miraculously huge, mind-blowing ways. And we have reduced his power to the things that we can manage. You ask most people, what... Scripture verse guides your life. Which one do you, are you familiar with? What is your favorite? A lot of people will say Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, in all your opportunities, in all your paths, in all of the things presented to you, all the things you're mulling over in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will put a light on a straight path. 
not just illumine the way you want to go. He will illuminate the path that you are supposed to take through everything that you're contemplating. For some of us, that's difficulties. For some of us, it's, it's managing the blessings as well. There's wisdom in both sides of that. And if we surrender and say, Lord, it's to you and to you alone, I look as you illuminate my path and you make my path straight, that's where I'm going. I have two questions for us as we look at this process and this revealing of the light. The first is, do you look to the Lord with wonder? We're going to see lots of children smiling and having a great time. And my, my kids... Christmas list is about eight times as long as the stuff that they'll actually get. And I've wondered that. It's like so funny because they end up getting a handful of those things and that the list is so long. It's because there's the possibility that any one of those things might show up. There's that wonder of, I know I won't get it all, but what if it's that thing? Or what if it's that thing? It represents possibility, right? We used to wonder about those things. We used to be in awe of those things and amazed by the arrival of those things. Well, where did we grow up in our faith, that we stop expecting the Lord to do the thing that we just go, how did he do that? So the second question is, if he's that wonderful, do you look to him for counsel? Where do we find it? Well, John 1 tells us where we find our hope, our light, and our counsel. John, in setting up the story of the gospel message, the arrival of Jesus, even the Baptist's uh, participation in that, all of that is unfolding. He starts off the text with, in the beginning was the word, capital W. We're talking about a person, not a thing. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning. He was in the garden. He was walking with Adam and Eve, he was asking the question, where are you? Why did you go away? What have you done? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And him was life and the life was our flashlight, our illumination, the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and darkness has not overcome it. If this is true, why aren't we turning to him for wonderful counsel? You know, we've traded in this expectation that God's word is alive, that it's, it's real. We've traded in this expectation that God can do the things that nobody else has the answers for. We're given to therapeutic expressions. We go down a path of self-discovery. We listen to voices in culture or pop culture or in higher education or any of those kinds of things. We listen to the pressures around us as children of God. We listen to those pressures and we start going, that sounds a little bit right. Sounds wise. Sounds like the kind of thing I need for today. I get my slogan. I get my healthy statement. I actually think that's partially why a lot of people are starting to, in pop culture, if you've noticed this trend, I've mentioned it a few times, they're starting to come back to the church. You know, I, uh, the one example I, I keep running across, it's funny, they, they, they seem to be out there with, with all this stuff, or like uh, Justin and his wife Bieber, Hallie or Haley Bieber or something like that. And they're church-going people. And then they're turning around and doing everything else that their life is, they're allowed in their brain to separate all of those things. 
because they're seeing that, and I don't mean to judge them from a distance, but they represent something, a thought here, that they are seeing a principle of, of uh, let, me, let me spell it out for us in Hebrews 4. This is where it is. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. You see, what they're seeing is a bumper sticker or a slogan or a meme God who says the things that get me through the day, who inspire me. Hebrews says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all, Adam, Eve, listening, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The living, walking, breathing word of God lives inside of us, is active. It doesn't lay dormant. It's sharp and effective. It it cuts down to the places that we can't even see with the naked eye. It judges the things that we're unwilling to offer up ourselves that the Lord has to find us hiding in the bushes and say, come on, get out of there. Don't you trust me? Trust me with your stuff. We can, we can deal with this. I am setting up a plan as we speak to carry out that will take a long, long time. Put your hope and trust in that light that we're pointing out. We start to repair things, Adam. Start to repair things, Eve. What has just happened, I, I don't think we can comprehend the, the wicked fracture that happens between God and man when Adam and Eve sin. But God instantly has his plan in place already that he is unveiling so that you and I arrive at the point where the word of God that's living and active and present in our life is like that light that's set before us. And we say, I want this to illuminate all of my paths. I want it to draw me out of the shadows. I want it to draw me out of my, my tendency to hide from him, to, to uh, not risk the exposure that the word of God will do these things in my life. The scriptures are not just a book of do's and don'ts. It's okay to post them on Facebook. It's okay to encourage others. This isn't a knock on that sort of thing, but it's more than that. It's not primarily a book of timeless principles or good slogans or things for us to remember. It has those things in it, but it's more than that. It's not primarily a casebook of characters that we can emulate or some that we would avoid and say, I can't do what that guy did. It has all of those examples in them for us to follow and to see, but it's more than that. I had an interesting read uh, this week when I was looking at Jonah, unrelated to this. It was just kind of in my annual reading through the Bible and stuff. And I've heard, of course, the story of Jonah so many times and seen some great Veggie Tales depictions of it and everything. I feel like I really understand the story of Jonah and I appreciate it and stuff. But something came, uh, popped out at me a little bit uh, differently this time. And uh, in the story of Jonah, we know that Jonah is the reluctant prophet. He's more than reluctant. He's rebellious. He doesn't want anything to do with Ninevites. He's got all kinds of reasons, all of them terrible, but he doesn't want anything to do with Ninevites. And so the Lord says, you're going to Nineveh. You're going to deliver my message of salvation. They're going to repent and it's going to take. And Jonah said, not interested. I don't want the job. You know, God put him through a series of events, eventually gets him there. Jonah gets up on stage, figuratively speaking, and and, and almost just kind of says, God wanted me to tell you, 
You've got to repent from your sins. If you do, he'll forgive you. If you don't, good luck with that because he's not going to look kindly on that. So there you go. And he walks off. They all went, sounds good. Maybe we should do this. Like erupting applause. Yay, we repent. Let's serve Jonah's God and everything. The greatest evangelist message probably ever. And he didn't prepare an ounce for it because the Lord had been doing something in the hearts of those people. Jonah, after seeing, even after seeing all of this, is discouraged and he's mopey. And so he's sitting in the hot sun. Oh, it's hot out here. So God grows a plant to give him shade, but then he kills it by a worm within a day. And Jonah takes up the cause of this plant. He says, why would you do this? What did that plant ever do to you? It was only here for a day. Now I'm hot again. And then God says, he says, Jonah, why do you have such compassion on a plant that's only been here for 24 hours when I have been watching an entire nation defy me, rebel against me, and I have laid the groundwork to deliver them from their darkness, to rescue them from their hopelessness, to forgive them of their sin. I have sent you here to do that. You say two words and it works and you have no compassion on these people. What I saw in that was that God is always the star of every story in the scriptures. That Jonah, even though the book's written about him, even though it's all about his actions, his deeds, his complaining, his message, all that kind of stuff, that God is the primary character weaving all the way through. And it was all about God's compassion for those that have thumbed their nose at him, that have rejected him, that have rebelled against him. He loved them so much that he would send a rebellious prophet to go and win them back to himself. And that's become, that's what becomes uh, the, the context of the story that bleeds through. You see, the scriptures aren't just a story about people, though there are people in it. The story is about what God has done to send the light that we needed because he's so heartbroken to see us tripping over in darkness, that we're stubbing our toes on the furniture all the time. And yes, there's some fear. If someone gives you that light, you're going, I'm not sure if I'm going to like what I see when I turn it on. I don't know if I'm going to like the arrangement of the room. I don't know if there are going to be some scary things that present themselves to me. But if we're hungry enough for the arrival of this light, if we're convinced of the wonder of the counselor and we invite that into our light, you can't reach for that flashlight fast enough. He's dropped, he's dropped jaws in history. He's dropping them currently and he will continue to do so because that's the God of miracles that is shining a light on your dark situation so bright. Why are you resisting? Why do we resist? Why is it so much work for us? And this is a point of confession as well. Why is it so much work for us to be around the wonderful counsel of the Lord? Why do I need to schedule my time to be in my Bible? Why do I have to find the time to pray and be in communion with him? Why do I have to force these things into my life when he has done nothing but drop my jaw and blow my mind through all the events of history and what he's done in my life and what I know he is capable and will do for the future. You see, sometimes we make this so difficult when really what we could experience in this Christmas season is a renewed uh, a passion for the wonder and the awesomeness of God. To be enraptured in all that he can do and say, that's the God that I want to draw closer to. I don't want to overthink this. Just give me the light. It's dark in here. I surrender. Let's pray together. Lord God, I want to thank you, God, for the hope that you give us. I thank you, Lord, for 
the blessing of your promise. We are so undeserving. Every generation has rejected your light. Every generation has rejected your counsel. And yet you continue to perform miracles in their midst. You continue to do the things that mesmerize, that that just blow our minds because of your faithfulness, because of your goodness, your compassion on us. May we not try your patience anymore, Lord. May we not squander these miracles that are happening in the lives around us. May we desire them for ourselves, Lord, so that we can give you the glory. Do the things in our life that draw us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.